Delighted to be here uh, once more with you for our third in this series on the solas or the onlys of the Reformation. Uh, we've been looking at solas like sola scriptura, Bible alone, and sola gratia, grace alone. And today we're going to turn our attention to another one, and that is faith alone. There are two more. We may do those some other time. Solus Christus, Christ alone, and soli Deo Gloria, that is to God's glory alone, as far as the deepest motivation of life is concerned. Let's just bow our heads in prayer. I just pray, our gracious God, that your word may indeed live in us and produce much fruit to your glory. For Jesus' sake, Amen. So, friends, we're looking at these catch cries of the Reformation, these sound bites that came out of that 16th century confrontation with a corrupt Roman Catholic Church of that day. And as I mentioned, the one today is sola fide, faith alone, forged in debate. Now, I need to say, however, in complete fairness, that the Roman Catholic Church has made a lot of changes since then and two really significant changes came out of a big meeting in the 1960s called Vatican II. A meeting in Rome under John, uh, Paul, the John, uh, Pope John XXIII uh, from 1962 to 1965 in which two really significant changes were made that I really must mention. One of those changes is that a Roman Catholic can now read the Bible in his or her language. And the second change that I want to draw attention to is that a Roman Catholic can read the Bible without a priest. And it seems to me once you let the Bible loose in a church, you can expect an evangelical movement to arise within it. And quite frankly, that has happened in this country, in Australia, in Britain too. Once you let the Bible loose... And it's that Bible we're going to draw attention to in a significant way right from the start as we look at A, some history from the 16th century, B, the biblical grounding for this idea of faith alone, and then C, looking at its relevance for today. So when we turn to the history, first up, it's the Englishman William Tyndale that I want to draw your attention to. He was the great translator of the New Testament into the English of his day and some of the Psalms as well. Uh, he famously said to a corrupt clergyman of his day, of which there were quite a number, unfortunately, if God spare my life, I will cause a boy that drives the plough to know more of the scripture than you do. Well, not actually calculated to win friends and influence people, but accurate no less in the light of uh, the clergy lack of education of the day. Now, he was hunted down for his translation work and eventually he was strangled and burnt at the stake in the Netherlands in 1536. However, thousands of his translations were printed and then smuggled back into England and were drawn upon for the famous uh, King James Version of the Bible that came out of the 17th century. In fact, his final cry at that stake in the Netherlands was, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. 
And it wasn't long after that that there was a Bible in English in every parish church in England. The Bible had been let loose. Now, what did Tyndale find in his Bible that led him to live and die like that? He found the Gospel. That's what he found. He found the good news that we received divine forgiveness, God's forgiveness, or put another way, we are justified in the divine court of judgment, not by what we do, not by merit, but by God's grace, a gift offered to us, embraced with the empty hands of faith, as Bishop Hugh Latimer of the 16th century put it. Here it is in William Tyndale's own words. That we say, faith only justifies, ought to offend no one. For if this be true, that Christ only redeemed us, Christ only bore our sins, made satisfaction for them and purchased us the favour of God, then it must needs be true that the trust only in Christ, deserving, and in the promises of God the Father made to us for Christ's sake, does alone quiet the conscience and certify that our sins are forgiven. And as we saw when we looked at uh, grace alone, he had the Bible on his side when he said that. Just recall what Paul wrote to those Ephesians in chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, if you want to turn to it in your Bibles. Indeed, it's worth underlining and meditating on. For by grace, Paul wrote to these Ephesian Christians, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a, a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Tyndale had the Bible on his side and it's that Bible next we turn to we look at B, the biblical grounding for this idea of faith alone. And we turn to the most famous verse in the Bible which is Yes, lots of folk know it. John chapter 3 and verse 16, which has been described as the Bible in miniature and is worth memorising and meditating on. So let me turn to it. John chapter 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world, it's the world of men and women on view here, not creation as such, but the world of men and women, that he gave his only son, his unique son, that whoever believes in him, that is in the Son, should not perish, but have eternal life. The life of the age to come, or another way of putting it, is a relationship to an eternal person that not even death can break. Eternal life. Not just an idea of duration, but a, a quality as well of life. The fullness of life. For God so loved the world, whoever believes into him. The idea in the original language, Pistuane Ace, is trusts in, leans into, uh, puts their confidence in. It's about a person to trust. A person to trust. And the person to be trusted is the Son of God who was given to us 
for the very purpose that we might enter into a relationship with God through faith that not even death can break. And in fact, this Gospel of John is written to elicit just that kind of response. And we find that in chapter 20, if you want to turn to it, and verse 30 and 31, where John's Gospel tells us the rationale of the Gospel itself. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written, here's the purpose, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the promised one of God, promised in the Old Testament Scriptures, the Son of God, the unique Son of God, that by believing you may have life, that eternal life again, in his name. Now here the idea of, is pistuane, hoti, belief that. What this Gospel is saying here now is that there's a truth about Jesus that is to be believed. In John 3.16 it is the personal. It's this Jesus we're to trust in. Now in John 20 it's this truth about this Jesus that we are to affirm. It's propositional. We believe that he really is who he claimed to be. He really is the person that this Gospel is saying that he is. That he's not just another prophet thrown up by the course of history. He's not simply a wise man or a moralist. Rather, he's the answer to the riddle of the human predicament. He is no less a person than the divine Son of God become human. He is the Word, as John 1 puts it, verse 14, who became flesh and tented or tabernacled, became flesh and lived amongst us with a view not only to making God known in a way that he had not been made known before but to go to that cross that what was necessary in removing the barrier between God and ourselves might be removed through his death in our place on our behalf at Golgotha, Good Friday. Now I say this gospel was written to bring about this faith. Well here's an interesting story. There's one Andreas Kostenberger You almost need Prince in front of that, don't you? Prince Andreas. It's got that sort of ring to it. But actually, a young German economist with his doctorate in economics, he was on the subway, I think it was in Berlin, and he got pretty bored on those subway trains and he saw a booklet on the seat next to him and he picked it up, it had been left behind. It was the Gospel of John. He read it from cover to cover and put his trust in Christ. Believed that that testimony of John's was the truth, that Jesus is that Christ, the Son of God, and he put his trust in this person for his life. And it transformed him. And Andreas Kostenberger now lives in the States. He got another doctorate, one was not enough, this time in New Testament, and he teaches the New Testament in a Bible-believing seminary. This Gospel of John still transforms because in it we find the truth about Jesus. Now, some folk in our churches today would sign off on a lot of that. Yes, uh, we believe that Jesus is uh, the Son of God. We, We believe he is the Christ. In other words, they believe that it is so. They believe that that is the truth. They believe that proposition. 
Now, our reformers back in the 16th century, like Tyndale, said that's, a, that's an important part of the story. But if that's all there is to what it is for you to be a Christian, then you have fides historica. You simply have an historical faith. You simply have what Tyndale called a storybook faith. You simply believe the story and nothing more. It's like believing that Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon back in BC times. It is simply, as it were, a tick in the mental box between our ears that this is so. But the kind of faith that we find that the Bible is talking about in Jesus is not just to believe that he is who he claimed to be, but to put our confidence, our trust in him. Tyndale would call that fides salvificans, saving faith. It's more than just a mental assent, it's an actual trust in Jesus the person and what he has done for us on that cross. And that's the faith that Andreas Kostenberger came to. A belief that Jesus is who he claimed to be and a trust in him. And when you think about it, trust is the glue of the personal, isn't it? Without trust, the person-to-person relationship doesn't flourish can't really be formed. Imagine a marriage where there's no trust between a man and a woman. Imagine a business where there's no trust between the partners. Imagine a friendship when there's no trust between the persons involved in that friendship. Imagine a government that you can't trust in. Didn't you have a spot of bother? (laughs) Did you have a spot of bother back in the 18th century about that? I think there was a loss of confidence in George III I read somewhere. (laughs) Trust is the glue of the personal. So it's no accident then that the scriptures call upon us, if we're going to have a person-to-person relationship with the living God, to put our trust in this person, Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Let me then turn to our third part of what we deal with in this series. Let's see its relevance for us today. As I say, there are people in churches who simply have fides historica, this historical faith. They simply assent that it is so, but it's had no transformative impact on their lives over time, either in a dramatic way or just gradually over time. Someone for whom that was true was a clergyman who lived between, straddled the 19th and 20th century and became an eminent theologian in his day, someone called P.T. Forsyth. He was a Congregationalist minister and he was trained in the liberal theology of his day. So his ministry was all about simply loving people and being helpful. They're good things, by the way. I'm not knocking that. But something happened to him. He found that in the course of being a theologian and being an active minister, He had to minister to people at the edge of life when they were facing the deep questions, the existential questions of suffering and life and purpose and death where we confront not only our finiteness but our fallenness. And in that (coughs) context, he got converted. It's always encouraging to me to find that a theologian's got converted. (laughs) Not every one of them is, it seems to me. But P.T. Forsyth put it like this, and I thought these were moving words. 
he said he was turned from being a lover of love into an object of grace. From being a Christian into being a believer. And what I think he was saying is he moved from just being culturally Christian, even though he was a theologian and minister, into being a convinced Christian. And I want to suggest to you, friends, by way of a question, could it be that America has too many Christians but not enough believers? Too much fides historica, not too much fides salvificam. People who can just tick a box and say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, rose from the dead and all that, but don't actually actively trust him for their ongoing life. Now, at this point, some people might say, and I've heard it said and said to me, they only wish in the light of a talk like this, they had more faith. It's as though faith is like gas, or in Australia we call it petrol, because gas means something else in Australia. You know, I need 13 gallons to fill me up, but, you know, I've only got three gallons of faith in the tank, as it were. I think that's to misunderstand the nature of faith, the nature of Fido's salvificans, saving faith. And I think that great Christian writer C.S. Lewis can help us here. He made a distinction, a philosophical distinction, 